Please take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. And please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to be reading Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. A beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, who He is. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. He is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And Lord God, thank you that this is your word, and thank you, Lord, that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. Thank you, Lord, that all things were created through him and for him, and that he is before all things, and that in him all things hold together. Thank you that he is the beginning, that in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And thank you, we thank you, that through him you reconciled all things to yourself and you made peace by the blood of his cross. Thank you, Lord. As we look at your word today, we pray that you would teach us, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word, that it would make a difference in the way we think and the way we believe and the way we live, the words that we choose, the, the actions that we engage in. Lord, let, let this time around your word that looks so foolish to so many, the foolishness of preaching. Lord, make it what you want it to be. Use it in our lives that we would be the people you want us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I go somewhere and want to use my credit card, I'm usually asked for my ID. I've got to show identification So that they know that I really am who I say that I am. And in this age of identity theft, you've got to be really careful. Well, we find Jesus' ID in the Bible. But the true identity of Jesus is often obscured or even hijacked or even stolen by those who are deceived and misunderstand what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Now, this can happen and has happened not only with those who deny God's word, but also with those who claim allegiance to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. Some people have a problem with the atonement. They can't figure out how the death of one man on a Roman cross so long ago could really pay the penalty for sin. Some have trouble with the resurrection. It's a stumbling block for for many or the virgin birth. Uh, Over the last hundred years, 
scores of Protestants have denied the virgin birth, have rejected the virgin birth. There are also the gospel miracles that many have trouble with believing. Up for grabs amongst those who can't seem to wrap their, their, their minds around it. But I think the biggest mystery that the gospel reveals to us is in the incarnation. How Christ could take humanity without losing deity. And the main truth that God wants you to grasp today regarding Jesus is this. Jesus is completely God and completely man in one person and always will be. Jesus is fully God and fully man and always will be. He is preeminent. He is superior and sovereign over all creation. That's what God wants us to grasp about Jesus. And the, the biblical support for that statement is huge. It's, it's, it's unparalleled in terms of support for a biblical statement. Now, as we seek to develop a biblical understanding of who Jesus is, I want to look at the question first theologically, kind of set a foundation, and then I want to look at the question experientially to see what difference these truths make in our lives. So, first of all, theologically, what does the Bible say? We're going to be, be camping primarily in, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. We will go elsewhere today, so get your Bibles ready, but but for now, let's, let's, let's settle in at Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Now, this passage, this short passage, and particularly verses 15 through 17, is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible when it comes to the question, who is Jesus? So that's why I want to go there today. Um, but I must say, often it is one of the more abused passages by those who deny Christ's true identity. Many people use these verses to say, look, Jesus isn't God. So that's why I want to show you today how these verses show that he is. Now, let me give you some background. Paul was writing to, to uh, the saints in Colossae, and the enemy of the church, of the early church, was what we know as Gnosticism. It's from the Greek word gnosis. It means knowledge. And it was an enemy of the early church. It, it taught that salvation was a matter of gaining special secret knowledge, often through secret rituals. And it was marked by a, a dualism, which is the idea that, that they believed that material matter, like your body and the flesh and the world, was evil, inherently evil. But the spiritual realm was inherently good. So they had this dualism going on. The, what you could see and, and feel and taste and smell was bad. What you, what you couldn't see but existed was good. And that's, that's the way that they sliced and diced uh, their worldview. And so in, in the Gnostic mindset, it either totally mattered what you did or it didn't matter at all what you did. It's like this. If it didn't matter what you did, you would, you, would, you would be going to the extreme of hedonism. You'd say, hey, it doesn't matter what I do with my body because it makes no difference to my soul. Therefore, eat, drink, and be merry. I'll do whatever I want. I will indulge my appetites freely. Now, if you thought that as a Gnostic that it, it totally mattered what you did, you would be going to, to the error or the... the the extreme of asceticism, 
where you would deny yourself every pleasure. So Gnostics were either ascetics where they would deny themselves everything or they were hedonists who would deny themselves nothing. An error that also sprang up was what is known as docetism, which denied that Jesus really had a physical body. People just said it's, it's, it's a, an illusion. He doesn't really have a physical body. And it, it led John to write very strongly in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He said, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and is now already in the world. Now Paul, when he was writing to the Colossian believers, was, was really battling or refuting Gnosticism. So we've got to keep that in mind as we read these words. Verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1 says that he, we're speaking of Jesus Christ, God the Son, he is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God, the Greek word is icon. It's the idea that he was the bodily representation of God. He is bodily likeness, in a sense, of God. It says that he is the, the firstborn of creation. And this is where a lot of people get, get, get uh, waylaid and they stumble over this. The firstborn of creation. Some say that this means, therefore, that he was created. That he had a beginning in time that the first thing created by God was the Son. And therefore, some would say, he is inferior to God. And a lot of cults will go there with this reasoning. So it's important for us to know what it really means. Now, an understanding of the Greek word for firstborn will correct this error. The Greek word is prototokos, and it, it is used 130 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was known as the Septuagint, it was very commonly used in the time of Jesus. Now, this word was used in the context, most primarily, the strongest meaning for the word was used in the context of blessing. Think of the Old Testament context of blessing. That the firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance, the firstborn received a better blessing, and basically special treatment. There was special treatment given to the firstborn. Now, um, it was a title, the firstborn. It was a title referring to status and position rather than birth order. Now, you've got to keep that in mind, that in this usage, in this context, it was being used as a title referring to status and position rather than birth order. It's going to be important when we get back to verse 15. But go, think with me on... Uh, Psalm 89, if you want to go there, Psalm 89 and verse 27. It's a, a messianic psalm, and, and God is speaking of David, but more fully of Christ. So Psalm 89 and verse 27. It says this, I will make him the firstborn... The highest of the kings of the earth. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, this was spoken of David, but it was a messianic psalm pointing ultimately to Christ. And this psalm is centering on the relationship 
first and foremost in that day uh, between David and God, okay? Between David and God, and it was not the fact that David was born, but the fact that there was this relationship that God had initiated with David, and that David had been given a preeminent position in God's plan. He was given leadership and authority over God's people. And then, more fully, the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, would have preeminence in a much greater way over God's people. Now, in Romans 8.29, Jesus is called the firstborn among many brethren. And the brethren are Christians, born-again Christians, even glorified Christians in that context. And that the idea is that he is the firstborn among many brethren, superior and sovereign over these Christians. Now, Hebrews 1.6, which is another passage we will go to uh, in a few moments, says this, that when he again, when, when the Father again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Worship being reserved for God alone. There's this idea of preeminence, that the angels would even worship him. Now, if you go to verse 18 in Colossians chapter 1, you see the word firstborn again. He is called the, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. It refers to the leadership in, of Christ in bringing about the resurrection of the dead and bringing about the new life that he gives to those who have faith in him. Now, you go back to verse 15 now, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This, this verse that has, uh, many have stumbled upon and many have used to actually try to disprove Christ's deity, his godhood. Firstborn in verse 15 doesn't mean first created. It refers to Christ's position and of power and, and, and primacy and preeminence. It is a title for Christ. And it's used with relation to Christ's superiority and priority, not origin or birth, since he had no birth. Now, he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, but God the Son eternally existed. And we will see more on that in a few moments. But this, this, translation, this, um, this interpretation of this word fits the passage. It fits the context. Verse 16 says, "...for by him all things were created." He is called the firstborn of all creation because all things came into being by him. So if you're going to disprove the deity of Christ or try to with, with verse 15, you've got to ignore the context. He is called the firstborn because all things came into being by him. He is the creator. Now those who deny Christ's divinity, saying this passage diminishes who he is, are greatly mistaken. This, this passage basically exalts Christ's high position. Paul uses every word available to him to lift up Jesus Christ, to, to show how high he is. It's like, when, it's like in America when we, when we name a world champion, in, in really in anything, but let's take basketball, pro basketball. You, you say, well, the world champion, Los Angeles Lakers, right? They're the world champions. Well, really, they're the NBA champions, and they just didn't go around the world to play everyone else. They, they played people in America. But, but they are called the world champions. They, they are over the entire NBA for this, this, this summer until, until the fall when the new season begins. They are the reigning champions, right? Well, the idea in the biggest way possible is that Jesus is 
the champion, the reigning champion, never to be dethroned, the sovereign over everything. This is the point that Paul is making in Colossians chapter 1. That there is no one higher than Jesus. And, and Paul literally pulls out the entire arsenal at his disposal and uses words that, that make that point. There is no one with higher rank than Jesus, no one greater than Jesus, that everything exists in the created order is under him, under his authority. They exist because he made them and they exist for him. It says in verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. It's easy to say, oh, he was the creator, but the idea that they were actually created for him is also here. We, we grasp this as believers, don't we? We acknowledge that we exist for God's glory. When we come to faith in Christ, we realize we exist for God's glory. That we exist for His pleasure. That we exist for His purposes. That's the idea. That we exist for Him. And all things exist for, for Him. Verse 17 tells us that all in Him, that He is before all things, and and in him all things hold together. Literally they exist. Or literally they endure in Christ. That Christ, this, this idea that Christ maintains the universe. He upholds the universe. He truly has the whole world in his hands. But he upholds the universe. Even this very moment, he is upholding the universe. Hebrews 1 tells us he does so by the word of his power. But he... He is holding the universe. It, it continues. The universe continues. The universe endures because he keeps it going. Jesus keeps it going. So we ask this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, the first answer is, he is God Almighty. That's what makes it made clear in Colossians 1. He is God Almighty. The one true God, the God of the Bible. The God whose identity is revealed in the Bible. That's who Jesus Christ is. Now, you've got to ask the next question. Well, then, if Jesus is God Almighty, who is God Almighty? Who is God? And that's where we get into what we call the Trinity. A word that is not found in the Bible, but a, a concept that is revealed in the Bible. The Trinity is, is simply this. One God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know this sounds elementary, but this is, this is who God is. One God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. It sounds elementary because we say, well, we know that. On the other hand, we cannot grasp it fully with our finite minds. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each are fully and equally God. Every one of them. They are, they are co-equal and co-eternal. And, and there, by the way, that state, statement that, that, you, that I just mentioned, one, two, or three um, aspects of this statement are often denied by those who do not believe that God is triune. And let me, it's there for you. There is one God. There's a statement that some people will deny and, and he exists in three distinct persons. And the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. Each one are God. They are, they are co-equal. They are co-eternal. William G.T. Shedd 
wrote that the doctrine of the Trinity is the most immense of all the doctrines. The, the foundation of theology. He said that Christian, Christianity inherently is Trinitarian. And you take the, the Trinity out of the Bible. You take the, you take the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit out of the New Testament, and there is no God left. Think about it. You take the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit out, we have no God. Verse 19 of Colossians 1 says that in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And, and in, in chapter 2 and verse 9, it says the same thing, basically, that in Him all the fullness dwells in bodily form. It's the idea that was first given in, in Isaiah 7 and verse 14 was reiterated in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, that they shall call his name Emmanuel, which the the Hebrew word translated God with us. He would be called God with us because he is God. So that's the first thing. He is God Almighty, but even the idea of Emmanuel tells us something even more uh, uh, deeper uh, is that Jesus is God incarnate. God incarnate. Incarnate is from the Latin meaning becoming flesh. God in the flesh. Augustine said that he remained what he was, God, and became what he was not, man. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. Completely God, completely man. Now, this is an aspect of Christ's identity that is often misunderstood, often twisted. It was done in the, it was happened in the early, amongst the early Christians, and it, it happens to this day. People do not understand this concept, and because with our finite minds, it's a mystery that, that must be accepted by faith, and the Bible must be accepted by faith, and many people will say he is not fully God, or he is not fully man, and they diminish some capacity. And so, in, in AD 451, there was the Council of Chalcedon, who wrestled with the, 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 um, the confusion, at, even at that point, surrounding the divinity and humanity of Jesus. And they came up with a clear statement that from that point on has been the accepted, commonly held view of all Christians. And here it is. That Jesus Christ is one person with two natures divine and human. He is both fully God and fully man. And the union of these two natures is what is called the hypostatic union. It's from the Greek hypostasis, uh, person. Um, there are three facts about this that, that tie in with this idea. And you might want to write these down. The, the, the first is that Christ has two distinct natures, human and divine. Two distinct natures, human and divine, and there is no mixture of the two. They are distinct. No mixture of the human and divine. And he still is one person. He still is one person. That's the commonly held view in all of Christendom. Let's go to Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3 verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. It says that he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son, through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There it is again. He's the creator. And it says in verse 3 that he is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. The idea is he bears the very stamp of, He's the exact duplicate. It's the Greek word character. He, has, he's the very, he bears the very stamp of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Shades of Colossians 1 and tying right in there. That Jesus is the exact duplicate of the nature of God, equal with God in every attribute. But the Son is not the Father. And the Father is not the Son. And the Spirit is not the Son or the Father. They are three distinct persons in the Godhead. Now, a common error that goes along with this idea of God, of Jesus being fully God and fully man is saying that Jesus gave up some of his attributes and nature as God. It's often known, called the kenosis theory, which is false. Go with me to Philippians 2.7. Philippians 2.7. At least it's false in the way in which it is often portrayed. Colossians 2 excuse me, Philippians 2 and verse 7, it says that Jesus made himself nothing, literally emptied himself, which is where we get the word kenosis, emptied himself. But the idea has often been portrayed that then Jesus gave up his attributes as God. He stopped being God, basically. But he gave up none of his divine attributes while laying aside his privileges as God. So the correct understanding of this is that he laid, he voluntarily laid aside his privileges as God without ceasing to be God. The emptying was not of the attributes of God, but of his rights as God. Key point to make. He took the form of a servant by coming to live as a man and being found in appearance as a man. He humbly for for. For purpose here, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He died on the cross in our, in our place. He made himself nothing while still being fully God. He never ceased being fully God. The emptying was a change in role and status, not essential attributes or nature. If you think about the context of Paul, the Paul's um, purpose in the context of Philippians 2 is, is to is to persuade his readers to to do nothing from selfishness or conceit. To humbly consider others as better than yourself, just like Jesus did. Think about it for a moment. When you read these verses, you would never think that God wants you to give up being who you are. He wants you to put the interests of others before your own. Jesus willingly gave up some of his privileges and status as God while fully retaining his attributes and nature as God. It's reflected in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. Though he was rich, he made himself poor for for our sakes. Let's also go to John chapter 1. We can't have a discussion about who Jesus is without looking at the first few verses in John, the Gospel of John in chapter 1. It's beautiful. It's It's succinct, much like Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. And it begins 
in verse 1, the Gospel of John, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Many of you have this memorized. It's so significant to our faith as Christians. In the beginning was the Word. It was eternal. There is no beginning. When everything else began, He was. That's why He said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus could say. The Word was then with God. There's the idea of him being a personal being, a person of the Godhead. And he was God. There's his deity. Personally distinct from the Father, but not a creature. Divine. Now you go down to verse 14. It tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus Christ. Back up to verse 3. All things were made by him. He was, he's the creator. He's the Father's agent in every act of making. Verse 4 says, In him was life. Life originated with him. He gave life to all. He gives life to all. There's no life in the physical realm without Jesus. And the life was the light of men. He gives light. He reveals. We are alive today due to the creative work of of the living Word of God. To have a biblically accurate view of Jesus, we must affirm that He was and is fully divine and fully human. Now, while we focus most intensely uh, today on His deity, because that is what most is commonly denied amongst opponents of the gospel it's really easy for Bible-believing Christians to deny the humanity of Jesus out of some fear that his, his deity might be minimized. We must, so before we get, go on, we must say this. We must not downplay the humanity of Jesus, him being fully man. With regard to his humanity, think with me for a moment. The virgin birth, uh, his human body, his mind, his, his soul, his emotions, the fact that people knew him as a man. And that most saw him only as a man while here on earth give ample reason for believing, believing his, uh, his humanity, the, the truthfulness of his humanity. We should not deny his humanity. His full humanity was necessary. He had to be both God and man. And why was his full humanity necessary? It was necessary for him to do what he came to earth to do, which was save sinners. It was necessary for him to be our representative in the realm of obedience. It was necessary for him to sympathize with us as a great high priest who did not need daily to offer sins for himself and then for the sins of the people because he was sinless from start to finish. And he offered once for all the sacrifice for sin as a man in the flesh. We need to make sure we don't downplay that aspect, though for our purposes today we're going to focus most intently on the deity of Christ because that is what is most often denied. So the next question is, how do you know Jesus is God? We've kind of made that point, but let me give you some supporting, uh, supporting material here. The Bible says so. That's kind of clear. The Bible says so. Um, let me give you two words that the Bible uses uh, that are significant for Jesus. The name of God, Theos, is used of Jesus. That's very significant. John chapter 1 and verse 1 and verse 18. Uh, Thomas said of Jesus, my Lord and my God. His, his, his declaration of faith in him as Lord and God. 
John 20, verse 28. Romans 9, 5 says that Christ is God over all, using the word theos. He's blessed forever. Titus 2, 13 says God, Jesus is our great God and Savior. Same word, theos. Titus 3, 4 calls Jesus God our Savior. 1 John 5 and verse 20 says Jesus is the true God. Isaiah 9, 6 says that he will be called mighty, his name will be called mighty God. We sing it every Christmas. Mighty God. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The other word that's significant for, in, in usage for Jesus is the word uh, Lord, Kyrios. Um, it's very significant. Second Peter 1, uh, verse 1 and, and chapter 3 and verse 18 calls Jesus our Lord and Savior. Uh, Kyrios is used to refer to the creator and sustainer of the universe, Almighty God. Uh, the shepherds in Bethlehem use this word Lord in this way. In Luke chapter 2, 11, we, we read it every Christmas, for to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord, same word. Basically, they were saying in Bethlehem is born uh, in the city of David a Savior uh, who, who is God himself. No wonder everyone who heard it marveled at that word. Now, the Father also says Jesus is God. The Father, Hebrews 1.8, he says, Thy, Your throne, O God, is forever. Of the Son, he says this. Matthew 3.17, at Jesus' baptism, he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. To call him Son is not a, uh, a, a lesser term. It's an equal term in that context. At the transfiguration, Matthew 17 and verse 5, a voice says, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Father declares him God. Jesus said he is God over and over again. John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one, Jesus said. John 8, verses 57 and 58, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. There is no clearer statement of, of deity than that. Revelation twenty two thirteen, a strong statement of deity. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The idea is that he is sovereign over all, equal with the Father. Also significant is Christ's usage of the title Son of Man for himself. Shades of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel saw one like the Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days and was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, a kingdom where all people would serve him and the kingdom would never end. It's, it's a claim to be the eternal world ruler of heavenly origin. And those who heard him say that, by the way, said that he spoke blasphemy and was deserving of death. Matthew 26, 65 and 66. While he was on earth, Jesus displayed the attributes of God. Omnipotence. He stilled the storm. He fed the 5,000. He turned water into wine. Omniscience. He knew people's thoughts. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree knew who would not believe, knew who would betray him, knew who was in man. Peter, after the resurrection, said, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. He showed sovereignty, uh, the authority of God. He he was able to speak and say, "Uh, you have heard, but I say to you. He spoke as only God could speak. He had omnipresence. He says in Matthew 18, uh, in verse 20, in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, always. He shows eternity by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Interestingly, even the demons said he is God. They called him the Holy One of God. They called him the Son of God. They agreed with God 
on these points. But another question, probably a bigger question we must ask is, why does Jesus have to be God? Why does he have to be God? He has to be God because everything rises and falls on it. If he's not God, we have nothing. If Jesus is not God, the gospel is not true. Only someone who is infinite can bear the full penalty and the wrath of God against sin. If Jesus is not God, then Christianity is false. Salvation is from the Lord, Jonah 2 and verse 9. If if Jesus isn't God, the Bible and God himself is at stake. The Bible is clear that no human could ever save themselves. Only God saves. So everything falls if Jesus is not God. If Jesus is not God, we have no mediator between man and God. No advocate with the Father, no high priest, no hope. See, the deity of Christ is absolutely essential. It's arguably uh, the linchpin of Christianity. It's the bedrock of our faith, theologically as well as experientially. You've got to ask this question, what difference do these truths make? We like to separate it out. We like to say, well, I believe this, but I act this way. That's, that's, that's kind of Gnosticism in a way. It's kind of dualism in a way. What difference do these truths make in our lives? When God drew me to himself through, by grace through faith, I was, I was blown away by two foundational truths. First, that the Bible is true. I hadn't heard that. Secondly, that Jesus is God. I hadn't heard that. To the only wise God uh, flows what he most deserves, but what we also often give such drastically lesser objects, and it's our worship. We give our worship away and and to God alone deserves our worship. And the difference it would be ma- making that, that Jesus is God is that we would worship him as God. We would worship him. The Father is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. People worship Jesus as God. Think about this for a moment. God will be guilty of breaking his first commandment if Jesus is not God. Jesus would be guilty of it too. You shall have no other gods before me. We would be guilty of it too. If we're worshiping Jesus as God and he is not God, we're, we're committing idolatry and blasphemy. It makes a difference in our knowing. John 20, verse 30 and 31 says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written. This was in the Gospel, uh, gospel of John. But these are written. Everything that was written in the Gospel of John. These were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. 1 John 1, verse 1 says that the things that we have seen and heard and touched with our hands, we proclaim to you. There was this experience on earth that those who were with him on earth had that, that we can't have at this point in time. Think about Thomas not believing and Jesus saying, come here, come here, buddy. Put your, hand, put your fingers where the, where the holes are in my hands and in my side. What did he say when, when he did that? My Lord and my God. Caravaggio has an amazing uh, painting of, of that scene, what that might have looked like. The amazement on Thomas's face. He touched Jesus. And, and so John could write in 1 John what, who, what we have held with our hands. But, but Jesus, Jesus let us know, let them know, let, let Thomas know that you believe because you have seen and you've touched me. Well, blessed are those who, who 
have not seen and yet believed. See, the idea that Jesus is God must have an impact, must affect our daily living. How we think, how we speak, how we choose to interact with others. Jesus being God quite simply should make all the difference in this world and the next. It ought to. And uh, not in our strength. Uh, when we're guilty, we're often guilty. I'm often convicted of sin, and justly deserving of punishment, and in need of mercy, not wrath. And, and, and we have a, a merciful Savior who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. If he were not God, we do not have such a hope. We do not have this assurance. When we're fearful, we have a preeminent present Savior who is with us always. He's not God. He's not with us always. When we worry, we have a Savior who's made peace by the blood of his cross, who is our peace, who says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives. Don't let your heart tremble or be dismayed or be afraid. How about when trouble comes in the form of of, of trial or temptation or persecution or even condemnation? When when trouble comes, we have an all-sufficient, sovereign Savior who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. He's not God, we don't. When we're tempted to give in to self-pity or anger or resentment or, or run ahead of where God has led or, or when we feel the magnet pull of the world, we have a patient, powerful Savior who has suffered in the flesh and has been tempted in all ways as, as we are, yet without sin. And if He were not God, we would have no such perspective. When we sin, we have a, a sinless Savior whose blood covers. Put it under the blood of Jesus. I don't care what problem you have. Let it be put under the blood of Jesus. I don't care what sin you've committed. Put it under the blood of Jesus. If he is not God, you can't. When we die, our hope, we trust in the word, is that we will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Due to the blood-bought Sacrifice of Christ on the cross. If it were not so, we would not have this hope. We would not have this hope as an anchor for our souls. We would be, we would be aimless, void of any lasting freedom from sin's power or sin's penalty and ultimately its presence if Jesus is not God. Last thing is that it is significant. Jesus, Jesus being God is so significant that it impacts our sharing of truth. If you go out of here today with a warped view of Jesus, if you've been living with a warped view of Jesus, you've been sharing that warped view of Jesus. You've been infecting others with that warped view of Jesus. How do you think cults and, and, and heresies spring up through people deceived? That's why we want to align ourselves with God's truth. Think of the game telephone and how messed up the first sentence gets by the time it hits the end of the line. Just think about some of your communications this week with people. Maybe texts or emails you've sent to people that have been totally misconstrued. We have a warped view. We're going to pass that view on. We can't lose sight. Don't lose sight of what the Bible says about who Jesus is. And cling to that truth. The infinite, omnipotent, 
all-knowing, eternal Son of God came to earth and became a man forever in order to redeem fallen men and save a people for himself. The infinite God became one person with infinite man and will remain that way forever. Probably the most awe-inspiring miracle and mystery that exists. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, in one person, preeminent, superior, sovereign over all. Let's pray. Lord God, this is weighty truth that we consider. It's not our truth, it's yours. We, we cling to it, we believe it, we, we rest in it, we, we wrestle with it, but it's not ours, it's yours. And Lord, we, we acknowledge that, we thank you for it, because if it was ours, we'd mess it up. Thank you, Lord, that, that it is safe in your hands, that it is secure in your hands. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.